Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Reveille, reveille, donks. Look at us now, tip to tip. This is our life. This is our passion. That's the spirit we bring to this show. I'm Luke Thomas. I'm Brian Campbell. This is Morning Combat. Oh, yeah. Oh, freaking yeah. All right. It's MK. It's hump day. Nearly every day in these parts. Wednesday, August 30th, 2023. And you're looking at the damn near... I don't know, best in show, best in class, the award-winning combat sports symposium, Showtime, CBS Sports. Yeah, we call it morning combat in these parts. Brian Campbell, the beige guy, BBC with the BDE, the American Alpha, at your service. The guy next to me, oh, just a fantastic bee's nest of salt and pepper, honey, and spice. (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, It's Luke Thomas from Washington, D.C. Luke, we got this great show for the fans today. Um, no need to get too up on the phone, but somebody's going to bang. Yeah. Someone's going to bang, but let's tell the audience what happened here. So yesterday for folks who don't know, uh, actually on Monday after Monday's show, BC took a plane to LA because he had to host the, so there was actually a press conference for just the undercard for the Canelo Charlo fight, which of course will be September 30th, but the undercard, if you guys haven't seen it yet, don't take my word for it. Listen to what other people in boxing are saying. It's great. So they had a special um, event for that. BC hosted it, then took a red eye home from Tuesday to now this morning, slept for an hour. And I was like, BC, are you sure you want to host? Because we're trying to mix things up, BC. BC is now going to be hosting Wednesdays. I might be hosting on Fridays. And he was like, boys and girls, when it's time to bang, when that red light comes on, yeah. it don't yeah. matter if I got an hour of sleep. BC's ready matter. to rock. It doesn't matter. That's what I do, Luke. I deliver, okay? If you're coming on, then you know what to do already. Hey, we got a great show. The return of fan submissions. You can follow us on the social channels below. And, of course, your regular look ahead, UFC Paris on the horizon. Some big news, some big investments in corporate partnerships in the MMA space to get to, and so much more. Big names from John Jones to... uh to a few others that are probably pretty big too. But uh, Mikey Mormal, CBS Sports on the ones and twos. Thank you very much for joining us today. We do get nominated for awards. So why don't we throw to the graphic here? The World MMA Awards is trying to make us or giving us the chance at the very least to become a three-time defending best MMA programming champion. It won't be easy, LT. We're up against Ariel. We're up against Dana White. We're up against Anik and Florian Embedded. Uh, you know, all those corporate entities those evil empires but we are the little engine that could a few times and did 
because we have crazy aggressive P1 fans who are willing to create 176 email addresses. But we appreciate you. We thank you. If you believe in us, continue to vote. Look, did you see people that took advantage of that early line when we were like plus 950 to win? And and we were like, yo, that's wrong. Okay. We're probably, you know, we got a good chance here. And now it's what? Minus, we're like minus 250 favorites. Yeah, now we're favorites to win minus 200, starting at plus 900. I'm told that like they got wind of the fact that whoever laid the odds just, you know, typical career for LT, typical career for BC, just yeah. fucking slept on, just completely fucking just, slept on. You missed so it. if you if you got in girly, chances are you might make some cash. Good for you. I hope you do. And if you missed it, now you got to kiss it, okay? Our ass. Thank you. Uh, let's get right into the show. No further ado, uh, of course, be beyond the merch. Morningcombat.store. Incredible average Joe Art collaboration coming. But for now, you can dress like me, look like me, act like me, feel like me. All right, topic number one. Let's get right off the top with a bang, Tui. Yeah, we're going back to Paris. It's UFC Paris this Saturday afternoon mixed martial arts if you're an east coaster like myself and of course a heavyweight tilt with hometown boy Cyril Gan looking to bounce back from the one-sided vacant title loss to John Jones two losses in fact in his past three fights the rising 28 year old Sergey Spivak in front of him but Luke Thomas this is the second trip back to Paris for the UFC correct me if I'm wrong before we get into the specifics of this matchup, let's talk about this expansion in general. To what extent do we feel like France has become a hot market in recent years, fueled, of course, by the sport being banned? Then Bellator was the first to put their flag back down and show up. UFC's been a few times. There's the potential if Cyril Gon can get back on the horse that there can be a French champion along with Manon Ferro with a big chance this Saturday. Where are we in the status of French MMA in your mind? Again, we're speaking from afar. It's a little bit hard to know now that we're not there, but it still seems to me a market that is a bit more of a market of the future than it is the present. Now, that sounds kind of odd because one of the reasons why you would want to go to France is not just that it's one of the top three economies in terms of size in Europe, although that would be part of it. The other reason might be that it's got a long history of tradition of martial arts themselves. Um, and so that is going to be a place where in terms of striking and especially judo, you're going to get great martial artists and, and lineages and, and other kinds of crafts you can pull from other composite sports to get great MMA talent. But that still hasn't been fully realized. Still, if you looked around in Europe, BC, what would you say would be the standout markets that people go to? I would say, obviously, the UK. I would say, obviously, Ireland. Uh, you would put France on that list. I do think Poland deserves to be on that list. But some of the other countries that you might want to look at, Italy kind of seems to be making some noise. Uh, but the two sort of ones that I kind of have my eye on in addition to France would be Germany. Germany, a big boxing market. But as it stands, not a big powerhouse for MMA. The other one that gets kind of interesting is Spain. Spain, yeah. I do think, is due for a big jump up with guys like Ilya Teporia and many, many others. So it is of note that the UFC is going to France. I do think it is burgeoning. I do think it is extremely important. But one of the things that's sort of keeping it in the place that it is, is one, it's just not quite there. And then on top of it, with the way in which pay-per-view works, they just aren't likely to put a pay-per-view fight there. I mean, just consider this. Connor has never fought for a title, uh, or I think even on pay-per-view, rather, in Ireland. It's never happened. So if even Connor McGregor can't get a fight in his home country, on pay-per-view you just wonder to what extent might france be limited in that regard sure. 
it's on its way. Well, Connor's been busy, Luke. I don't know if you saw him on the exercise bike with the banana hammock. I mean, in the grunting and the crazy eyes. I mean, what are we doing? What are we doing here, Luke? Please, please jump in at any point. What are we doing here, bro? I don't know. All Dude, right. we got to do imitations of that, like with our terrible yeah. bodies and everything That'll else. That would be just... great. That would be. I, if we went, you know, we're going to the studio this week. We should just recreate the worst viral MMA-related videos over the past year. Short of the whites on New Year's Eve, short of that, Luke, we don't need to recreate. I'll be that. the guy. I'll be the guy in the face-off who sprayed the other guy with pepper spray. I'm going to yes, do that to yes, you. That's fantastic. But no, French uh, market is big. But you know, Francis Ngannou would have been a big part of that, and yes. that's been a uh, an exit. Big Francis news to come, though, involving the PFL. We'll see where that goes. Luke, the card that stands as it is, not a pay-per-view card, but part of a busy stretch in which. We've got a pay-per-view, or at least a name only, for September 8th in Sydney that's very top-heavy. We've got another non-pay-per-view but pretty good-looking fight night card on UFC Noche. So when you look at this UFC Paris card, top-heavy, I think, would be an echoing thought. How would you grade, the, grade this this uh, this event come Saturday afternoon? Yeah, not highly. Not highly. I do think that, I mean, I want to be very fair. I actually feel like the main event, it's not, like, super sexy or whatever. But it's a good test for Cyril Gaon. Sergey Spivak has not just great takedowns and a prolific use of them, but he's got a, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, but he's got a wide arsenal of them. He can do a lot of different types. And for a guy who just vastly underperformed against John Jones, Sergey Spivak is not the toughest fight he could have had, but it might be just the right one that he needs if he wants to prove he can do something else. So I love that fight. And of course, you know, Rose Namajunas going to 125, taking on, again, another hometown uh, French woman in this case, in Manon Fioreau. Wonderful fight. Yeah. There are a couple of other interesting names on the card, BC. And, you know, I'm, some of this might just be due to my own personal ignorance. Again, Taylor Lapalus is on this card. I'm happy to see that. There's a couple of other names that are on this. Uh, uh, Reese McKee is back in this. Uh, but, but when Benoit St. Denis is fun against Thiago Moises, those are fun fights. But those are just apex quality uh, bouts that are relevant, perhaps to the French market, and not much beyond that. Sure. So I'm, fairly. But I'm low, happy to I be out say. of the apex. I'm happy to be out of the apex. Sure, I'm happy that at sure. least on the top heavy elements, there's a lot here. I mean, for as excited as I was about what that Aaron Blanchfield Tyler Santos fight last weekend meant to the growing thunder here in the 125 pound women's division, this Manon versus Rose fight is just as big and uh you know in a lot of ways in terms of potentially producing the next title challenger but let's focus on this main event and i think it's safe the way you sort of frame this luke to set it up we got a referendum here for 33 year old cyril gone and one i did not expect for us to be at he looked like heavyweight 2.0 he did lose two of his last three fights though with the only victory in that stretch the big uh, you know, all action knockout of Tai Tuivasa also creating a lot of questions in terms of why that fight ended up getting that competitive and that dangerous. Luke, when you look back at this three fight stretch, yikes, uh, was unable to out wrestle a one legged man in Francis Ngannou, and we all know what happened against John Jones. He he laid an egg. That's what happened for Cyril Gan. How important is this referendum? How critical? Should we be looking at, at Cyril's every movement here? Is it really down to like not win or go home, but we are at a crossroads of the career of Cyril gone 33 years old, not young. How integral and important is a big performance here, Luke? Dude, I think again, you know, 
winter go home is sort of like a maybe a dramatized way of saying it but it's big it's really 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 big i mean cyril gone when we saw him coming up and doing the stuff he did on the stri striking side we were all blown away i don't need to remind anyone his movement his shot selection his ability to not take punches and the names he was beating during that time the two ivasas the lewises the volkovs and like making it look you know relatively easy in the process like these guys could barely touch him you know, he was just such a clear, great decision maker in that space for the most part. And by the way, BC, a dynamic athlete. Like how many times in the heavyweight division, he's not just a big, strong guy. He's like a very, very good athletic um, a big man, right? And that's a little bit hard to come by sometimes in the heavyweight division. So you're like, dude, this guy's going to be great. And then some of the problems he showed against Francis was a big one. And, you know, not just – it's like – I want to be clear about something. It's not just that, like, he – didn't have the skills he needed to like when you jump on an ankle rather rather than passing guard or for you, know, you just uh, sit to it like that it just tells me your level of skill is low low so it, it's a lot of work he has to make up and then to just shit the bed the way he did against jones with virtually no resistance okay john jones is john jones fine but there was nothing he did and even then bc the punch selection, which he has acknowledged was the wrong one in that scenario. Okay, fine. But you shit the bed there. Dude, and I want to say something about Sergei Spivak. Like, you know, he did lose to Tom Aspinall. That's his last loss. But Aspinall, we know, sort of bouncy striker, very, very strong. And he was able to really fend off some of the takedown defense to really, you know, turn the tide on Sergei Spivak. But that was 2021. Spivak is a lot better since then, which isn't to say that Aspinall would lose. That's not my point. I'm just saying that the version of Spivak he's right. getting now is a much better version. And I want to make sure the, the audience understands this. I did a bunch of tape study yesterday to prepare for today's show. And you just go through the Augusto Sakai fight, high crotch lifts, inside trips, catching kicks. He's got double legs against the fence. He's got Sasai's that turn into Harai Goshi's, Uchimata's. He chains everything together. Why do I bring this all up? He's got a vast arsenal of takedowns that if one fails he can go to the other one if that one fails he can go to the other one now i know what the standard response is going to be bc well none of those guys that he got him on because he didn't get it on aspinall but none of the guys that he got him on were cyril gone athletes they were not as strong as him they're not as quick as him and that's all true but let, let's just think about it last thing on this if spivak is able to now group gone into the augusto sakai's the greg hardy's the Alexi Olenix of the world, that would be a substantial downgrade from the guy who was trying to unify a title against oh, Francis yeah. Ngannou. Absolutely. I mean, Spivak, who we can get into deep detail, is not to be messed with. He's won six of seven. He's only 28, which is so absurdly young in this division and getting better seemingly every fight. But he's he's proven he can be, you know, kind of the B, B-minus level. He did then just submit Derek Lewis, which opened our eyes to the direction Spivak may be going but we were trying to figure out exactly over the last year who is Derek Lewis and which direction is he going. He now appears to be running off into the direction with no pants, but he is back. The question is going to be, is Cyril gone back? Or is, I like how you said it, Spivak would drag him down to that lower level of, of sort of, you know, talented, but very vulnerable and sort of easy to implode if we're looking at it as a death star. But Cyril gone, we don't look at as a, that death star anymore. So Luke, you laid out kind of what happened and how we got here, but I want to kind of dig deeper and ask you what really happened. Is it merely that when Cyril Gaon was on that run of putting together wins early in a meteoric rise at heavyweight, 
where suddenly we're like, holy crap, look at this guy. He could really be the future. But he was winning fights one sided with with with, you know, with plan A and not having to really force to battle back. The last three fights featured adversity. It featured the kind of things he didn't see on the way up. Is it easy to explain away this slide as being, you know, people were finally able to get him past that, have to dig into plan B and C. And we we still saw how limited and, and not well-rounded. Or do you think there's something bigger going on in terms of imploding when the stage is the brightest? How do you explain the the fall of gone considering how, how quick the rise was? So two things I want to say. First, I, we put up a poll uh, for the folks on YouTube to take who we think is going to be the winner. Is it going to be Spivak or is it going to be gone? Please take the poll. I'd love to get the results at the end of this segment. We can share that with the audience. But in answer to your question, BC, I think it's a little column A, a little column B, right? It doesn't matter who you are. If you ascend through the ranks, you are eventually going to get audited. And that doesn't mean that, you know, everything's going to collapse around you, but the first four fighters you face in the UFC might not discover your weakness, and then the fifth one does, and then six, seven, eight all take advantage of it. That can happen. I think that's just a natural reality. So I don't really fault uh, Gone for entering that territory. The question is how you respond once you get there. That brings out, so that's column A, but then that leads us to column B, which is what you're asking. You know, there's a real question about whether the guys at MMA Factory under Fernando Lopez are getting the kind of training that they need to be getting. You know, another guy who's got good stand-up and is a good athlete and trains really hard is Nasruddin Imovov. But he's got some of the same problems. I mean, he's a little bit more takedown heavy, but the question is, is he getting the full well-roundedness that he is supposed to be getting? Are they, do they have the right kind of training? Now, remember, there was a big contentious debate about it when Francis Ngannou left MMA Factory to go to Extreme Couture, but it, you know it's very hard to look at his trajectory since then and say it's been a fucking downgrade. It has not. Yeah. He has only gotten significantly better, although now he's had an injury. I guess we'll see how he looks after that. So here's my point, BC. I think we do need to be understanding of Gon, given that with the more the higher the stakes, the better the opponents, the more wrinkles of of uh, weakness that they're going to find. That's inevitable, right? But has he done what he has supposed to do to shore up those problems? I'm not sure, listen to what I'm saying, I'm not sure, we'll see on Saturday, whether or not the place he's in is the right place to solve that problem. That's an interesting question right there because it's it's not just, it's like what I'm trying to figure out here, is it better for Gon to go back and be what he was on the initial rise and be all in on being that striker who's going to control the terms in front of you and be hard to hit and be in and out on those quick feet and just be the ultimate kickboxer and try your best to work that takedown defense, you know, as tight as you can to prevent yourself from being on the back or, or because heavyweights evolve late because he is 33. uh, Is it more about, look, you just have not been putting in the time on the ground. And if you put in that time with the right instruction, the, the, the quick leaps that you can make could sure shore up a lot of these holes that led to this streak over these three fights, Luke. Like, is there time to reinvent the wheel? Has it been a lack no, of great coaching? No, but why would you need to reinvent But why would you need to reinvent the wheel? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Yeah, I'm trying no, to no, figure no. out. There's no need to reinvent the wheel. Like, you are who you are. The guy, remember, the guy comes from Muay Thai. That's where he comes from. Like, why get away from that? That shit is great. Or at least at a bare minimum, good enough to beat probably most heavy- heavyweights, to be quite honest with you. Maybe even all heavyweights in the UFC. That's certainly not a crazy thing to say. The question is, 
what else he does to maintain range. Good strikers, it's not just that you have good takedown defense once you lock up with someone. Good strikers, and this is where he failed in the John Jones fight, they choose the right kind of strike selection to maintain range. Like, who's really good at this? Sean O'Malley is really good at this. Look at look at Aljamain Sterling trying to run in because he can't fucking get a hold of the guy. Now, sometimes yeah. he did, obviously, but, you know, it's not enough to just do that. So good takedown defense. Like, it's asking, you know, if Sean O'Malley got taken down a bunch of times, should he stop being who he is? No, he should be exactly who he is. But what you have to do is complement it, fortify it. And that's what the champion at middleweight did. Fortify everything around what you're already good at so you can keep that, you can lord that yeah. over your opponents. But you got everything else. BC, I got to give you a stat. I know you haven't asked, but I got to give you a stat I'd on this. I'd love to hear one, yeah. Listen to this. Listen to this. This is, this is to me, the central tension in this fight. Because on the feet, do we really believe that Spivak can beat gone i don't believe that i I just don't i think gone would would eat him up on the feet but here is the takedown numbers on spivak per 15 minutes he's good for 5.05 almost two around almost two around dude i mean if he's doing that if he's doing that to gone and gone is the same gone that we've basically had up to this point he's cooked i mean he's cooked he has to he has to solve that problem. Otherwise, it's curtains for him. I, I'll agree with that. I, I like what you said about fortifying. It's almost imagining building a moat with you know fire breathing alligators around the striking and, and, and understanding the that he's vulnerable on the ground. So what do the great strikers do? Like you said, everyone from Max to Chuck Liddell, fortify that defense, make sure you're not going to be taken down at will. I'm just trying to figure out what has been the disconnect and you know, if it's just not putting in the time to do that, to fortify that, because look, he's, he's been remedial on the ground. He's been remedial. Once you get his back down, it's been shocking, but are there, there's gotta be some level of limitations. Spivak has looked very good. This is though a, a step up in class. We're trying to figure out if his win over Derek Lewis, which got him in this situation, was more fool's gold than a great win because of the slide Lewis was on. Is there still an opportunity in your eyes that Gon comes out, fortifies that, the takedown defense is strong, and he makes this a 25-minute kickboxing fight that he can control on his terms? Because if we get back to those, if that playing field, you're going to see the old Cyril gone again, and this is a fight he should win. And I think the odds are showing you that central question. If you look at Caesars right now, minus 160 for Cyril gone, plus 135 for Spivak. Damn, does he need to keep this fight on the feet? If he does, Luke, how do you love his chances, or do you just really like them against Spivak? No, if he keeps the fight on the feet, it's curtains for Spivak. Okay. It's curtains. I mean, his whole game is clinch or you know level change, whatever, takedown, ground and pound, mat return, ground and pound, maybe sub, well, that kind of thing. Like the what he did to Greg Hardy is basically what he likes to do. They lets him up and then he returns him to the mat and then he just kind of fucks him up in the process. That's his game. You have to stop that whole thing before it gets started. Laura Senko has a great description for it, like the wash cycle, where they're just getting thrown up and down and up and down. Yeah. I mean, that's really how he wins. On the you and feet, I are in that right now, Luke. We're living that cycle. Yeah, right that wash cycle. <laughs> yeah. yeah, almost hit the rinse. Yeah. Uh, so, but, but I mean, this is what you have to understand about Cyril gone. It's like, sometimes guys don't get good enough. You're like, what is it? Like they're good athletes. And then they train hard. Like, why can't they do it? 
Dude, Gon's trainer, Fernando Lopez, uh, or Ferdinand Lopez, I think is how he is his name. Yes. Excuse me. I, I think I was calling him Fernando. Fernand, Ferdinand Lopez was telling me, like, the guy's brain is like a computer. Like, once he's, he's shown something, he kind of immediately gets it. And we've seen what kind of an athlete he is. Let's show him takedown defense. Right. Ferdinand, show him right. it. Come right, on. right. So this is a, exactly. This is my point. For a guy who can dunk, for a guy who can play soccer nimbly, like, all those things. If he doesn't have the requisite takedown defense in this fight, it is only his fault and it yeah. is only his coach's fault. There is no reason an athlete that good should be that far behind this far along in his career because he's way too athletically gifted for it to be like, oh, I just don't have the physical skills to bring this to bear. Yes, he fucking does. And it's remember what he said, dude, uh, between camps, he doesn't really train all that much, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that would be your culprit is is he in no, the right place to get the right instruction? And is it effort? Right. Because if you're going to if you're going to pass this test in real life and by this test, I mean, fortifying your takedown defense, you've got to be in a spot where you're not going to get exhausted fighting off the takedowns of Spivak, that you're not inevitably going to, you know, kind of like Connor against Habib, fight it off aggressively to a certain point. But once once the the dam breaks, once the you know the wall starts crumbling, you're done. You fall into that pool. But what I want to ask you about Cyril Gan is if we're missing some of the rare good that came out of the last three fights, and if there's any good, I'm talking specifically about that Tuivasa war, and the idea that look, we were shocked. I was shocked, Luke, that Tuivasa was able to lure Gan into an actual war, stagger him, scare him, and then obviously though this is where we got to give Cyril Gan credit when he stepped in. Within the chaos, sat down on his shots and went into fight or flight finishing mode. Dude, the results were spectacular. Now, whatever you want to say about Tuivasa, who's there to be hit, the results were spectacular. Where before that, I think we looked at we looked at Cyril Gan as a you know at times a breathtaking striker when he's controlling those terms and he's dancing around you and tapping you up. But we didn't look at him as sort of this mean streak knockout threat. If it happened over accumulation, it happened. Do you think gone when we're talking about not reinventing the wheel, but instead fortifying and going back on the strengths that you already have and just making them stronger, would you like to see a more potent, aggressive offensive attack from the idea of power shots that maybe you can take what he did well against Tuivasa, which was adjust in chaos and beat the bully and take him out? Is that a mini evolution in Gon's game that you think he can carry into fights like this? If he goes after Spivak, is, is he going to be in trouble, or is this is there an opening here where maybe he can be a more potent finisher if he sits down on these shots and shows more intention? I got to tell you, of all the concerns I have, at least for this fight, for this one, now that way he gets a different opponent at a different stage of his career, different conversation. But for Saturday, I don't really give a shit about this. I, I just don't think it's all that relevant. You got a guy who's not very good on the feet, who's, you know, he's, you know what? Spivak's got a good jab. He's certainly got a lot more comfortable on the feet, you know, and setting up his strikes. All that's true. But over the course of time, he would just get outstruck. Like, there's just no denying it. I know you're asking, like, really stepping on it. It's not the central task here. It's not what this fight is about. This, the, the, Why did they book this fight? Did they book this fight to see if he's got that extra gear? Only, 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 only if he's got the requisite takedown defense. That's what will do. That's what will power everything. If Gon can prove in the middle of the fight that Spivak is hopeless to take him down, like 
Tom Aspinall did, it's probably going to go like the Tom Aspinall fight. Because at that point, Tom Aspinall did step on it. He he locked up with him in the center and then hit him over the top with an elbow. That's what he did, right? So like he was just absolutely letting it fly at that time. Sure, but it comes down to that much more important one. It's you got a guy with a diverse set of takedowns who can chain them together, not much of a threat on the feet, relatively speaking. Can you answer that? Because if you can't, then we know who you are now. You're just a guy who is very, very athletic, very talented on the feet, but probably not much more. And any athlete who can get around that problem with their takedown ability is going to have their way with you. That's the that's they want to know what the fuck they've got with this guy. Spivak yeah. is a phenomenal test for that. Well, let's talk about Spivak's UBL, Luke. His upper bound limits. As we look at the rankings for this fight, Gon comes in ranked number two, Spivak number seven. We certainly can believe due to Gon's name, he's been in the title picture before. He's fighting in the main event in his home city here as part of this expansion for France MMA for the UFC that if Gon wins this, and if he does so in a way that crushes the critics, right, he's going to be right back into a huge fight. But what about Spivak? Because, Luke, if I'm being – now, this is super critical, but let's imagine we looked at this heavyweight division, we looked at this top ten, and we sort of lumped everybody in two categories. Those that we believe could be champion and those that believe we can't. And that's no disrespect to those that we believe can't, but they're ultimately going to be, you know, litmus tests for others to try to get there. Sergey Spivak, as I mentioned, did finish Derek Lewis, former title challenger, star. We're not really sure, though, you know, is does that enough to tell you that he's coming or going? If Sergey Spivak comes out here and beats Cyril Gaon, is he in that category now of guys that we believe? And I'm putting, like, Jalton Almeida. I'm putting, you know, uh, I'm putting Tom Aspinall in that category. I'm putting these guys in the top ten who maybe we haven't seen their full ceiling yet. We believe if they get hot, they get a run, man, they could do that. Even Volkov, even though Volkov struggled at the highest level, I still believe one day he could win a title, Luke. I, I'm still a believer. If Spivak beats Cyril Gaon, will you be a believer? Hard for me to say I believe he could win a title uh, unless his stand-up shows significant improvement. But I would agree that if he beats Gaon, and you might be like, well, didn't you just say his takedown defense is bad? Sure, but he's also a much better athlete than Augusto Sakai. He's a much better athlete than Derek Lewis, right? Like, I mean, vastly superior. So if he can beat a guy who is strong and quick and agile and balanced in that way, and he can do the kind of Spivak thing that he does, you would have to put him at the upper end of that division. And the thing that you mentioned, BC, that really is the most intriguing one. Again, it's not really, you know, if Spivak beats Gon, what kind of Spivak do we get? The fucking guy is 28. 28. Yeah. Who's he going to be in two years? Who's he going to be <clears throat> in four years if he can stay relatively injury-free? I know he's done a lot of training over at Extreme Couture. The guys over there tell me his improvement is dramatic, dramatic. So you really wonder, like, yes, would beating Gon place him in that upper echelon of the heavyweight division? I agree with that. Wouldn't convince me he'd win a title, but it would put him in a different space. But it would also put us on notice that this guy's long-term potential might be significantly higher than we ever thought possible when he had the receding hairline that nearly touched all the way to the back of his head. Now he shaves his head. You don't see it anymore, but you see what I'm saying? We were just, we were dismissing count Dracula back then might yes, be time yes. to start taking him a lot more seriously. Yes, indeed. Uh, Luke, that's your main event, your co-main event, huge stakes, women's 125, former strawweight champion, Rose Namajunas, surprisingly not only moving up to 125, but making her debut against the red hot 33 year old, native of France, Manon Thoreau, who has won all five 
of her UFC appearances since debuting in January of 2021. Most recently, decisions over top contenders Jennifer Maya and Caitlin Chukagian, two former title challengers. Uh, so this is this is we're finding out is Faro in the same category as Blanchfield and, and these other risers, Alexa Grasso, who took over the belt from Shevchenko in two weeks from this Saturday, will defend it in a Noche rematch. Luke, the lot of this story, rightfully so, is going to be about Rose and the move she's making, daring to be great, entering a deeper division, trying to scare herself into, you know, preparing herself for a new level. What about Faro? What about the idea that if she wins this and she looks great, she might be cutting the line in fighting for a world title? How ready is France's Manon Faro? do you believe in terms of rounding out her full game and proving herself a potential threat to the title here? Is it just survive in advance win against a name this good in Nami Yunus and she could be fighting for gold next? Is this your expectations? Uh, I mean, we were in France. They're trying to showcase her, by the way, I don't know if it's pronounced Fioro or Caceres. I honestly don't know. It could be either in this particular case. It's I'm just teasing. Not I'm just teasing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Definitely not at a Sonia Uh, but I'll say this BC. Um, listen, they're showcasing her. They're showcasing her, right? They're putting her in her home market, co-main event. She has a decorated combat sports background, uh, and she's tough as shit, at least, for, at least in terms of this particular matchup. You're asking if you beat Rose on Saturday, is it automatic title shot? Well, it's hard to say anything's automatic title shot unless there's like a you know, complete vacancy at the top of the division. But I would say that the chances are pretty high, right? Especially if she goes in there and stops Rose, which I don't, I don't know how likely that is that that's, I mean, that I'll say this. If she goes in there and beats the shit out of Rose, well then maybe she actually is pretty automatic for a title shot. But I just think this is more about showcasing someone in their home market, getting a win potentially over a big name, setting up someone who could be usable for a title shot. If that's the direction they want to go. I just wonder what might happen between Shevchenko and Grasso and to what sure. extent uh, that could complicate all the things. That's why I just can't quite say, automatic but i mean on deck circle yes it's all of yeah. that and then some i do believe that especially with the targeted expansion in mexico and doing the ufc noche card in las vegas on mexican independence weekend and really trying to pull from that boxing audience that if even if shevchenko imagine if shevchenko redeems the loss in a great fight and gets a stoppage you could see a trilogy there look you could you could and then you know, under that scenario, could we be looking at Blanchfield against the winner of this fight on Saturday? Who knows? Either way, the stakes are really high. But I guess what I'm trying to ask you about the 33-year-old Faro, who enters, by the way, uh, according to Caesars, as a slight betting favorite, minus 180 to the plus 155 Nama Luke, have we seen enough from the idea of a well-rounded game that Faro, for whatever weaknesses she does have as an experienced striker who doesn't go to the ground a ton, can she go all the way to the top with what you've seen so far against the Mayas, against the Chukagians? Can this be enough to beat Rose, to beat Grasso, to beat Shevchenko in your eyes? This is tough. I mean, I feel like... Here's what's interesting about uh, Firo. She doesn't have, in my view, like the most impressive skill set. Don't get me wrong, it's a very good one. What I'm saying is among the very best 125ers, I wouldn't spotlight her game as like the one that is the most like aesthetically pleasing or the most dangerous. That's not really the, the way I look at it. 
but it's one of those kinds of games that is like very, very difficult to beat. She's very good at maintaining range, right? And that alone, we just talked about it in the main event. We just talked about it with Sugar Sean O'Malley. Strikers who are primarily, obviously, you know, striking-based fighters who are not just good at like landing big shots or being aggressive. And people always like the strikers that just hunt people down because that's what's fun and exciting. But it turns out to me that like if you look at the ones who are just very good at maintaining range and have high activity, that's a very difficult style to beat. Uh, and that's exactly the one that she's got. Plus, she's big, I think, even for 125, which is something to consider. BC, if you look at the numbers here, you know, they're the same reach in terms of their hand reach. But remember, you know, Menon will do a lot of like sidekicks and teeps to keep people off of her, right? Constantly maintaining that range. She's two inches taller than Rose. But this is the big one to me. This is what really stands out. Rose lands 3.66 strikes per minute, which is pretty average for a ranked fighter. Um, and off your row, 6.58. 6.58. That's almost Max Holloway territory. I mean, that is a lot of activity behind someone who kind of uses her kicks almost like a like a range extending jab right that's a very difficult person to beat they've got similar striking accuracy they got similar strikes absorbed she absorbs a little bit less fiorotas than than nama Yunus. and her defense 71 percent. that's really high for a ranked fighter their grappling doesn't look much difference but how about this furo 83 percent takedown defense so let's noodle this for a second bc she's got very good takedown defense probably not great jujitsu but good takedown defense yeah she's got good use of range she's highly active striking stays on her feet moves around it's a three-round contest not a five and she's the natural 125er i know that rose is capable of magic to the point i was just making who's got a more beautiful game the last fight against the spars and notwithstanding Rose does. Rose has a much more beautiful game in that sense. But there's a lot of like really key battles where she's at a disadvantage here that each one is hard to overcome and the collective total might just be too much. I think this is why I love this fight so much. The odds are the odds tell you they're not really sure. And obviously there's a lot of questions surrounding Rose. Uh 16 months off since I mean, we talk about laying an egg in a title fight. We talk about uh, Irina Aldana. We talk about Cyril Ghosn. And we're being super critical and harsh at the highest level. But if we're going to be super critical and harsh with those people, Luke, what she did in the Carlos Esparza rematch to yield her title, I mean, you have to criticize it. You have to question the, the, the heart, the want. And we have been in places like this before with Rose, which is also, I believe, why she's been such a unique, inspirational, incredible athlete and ambassador i loved her documentary i love her takes on mental health and her stance stances on that she can be when she's dialed in the best mother effing fighter in the world and in some cases the division's history but she's now in a new division she's not going to be taller than everybody else does she have the kind of game that can level up at 10 pounds higher potentially because her timing and understanding of striking and footwork is so well. And because she is uh, an accomplished grappler who can be a submission threat. We know Faroe isn't great on the ground. There are reasons here. If, if Rose is on the consistent pattern that her partner and, and, uh, and co-trainer there or assistant trainer, Pat Berry always talks about that. Sometimes the, the mental toll of being the champ or being the best, can lead to Rose having a, a forgettable performance every once in a while. But Luke, historically, she's been able to reinvent herself and reinvent herself huge. 
you know, you remember the head kick KO of Wei Li in the first fight. You remember some of these huge moments like the first Joanna fight where she was being kind of bullied and she rose to the occasion there, uh, pun intended, but not really. I believe that Rose could slide up and wait here and just kind of float into it, even with the, the size disadvantage, just because the skills are so great. But Luke, we asked this question, and I think it's a fair question ahead of every big Rose fight. Do you have fears that some element of the disconnect, which produced the very forgettable performance against Esparza, where she kind of just laid down the title in a weird way, is that gone in your eyes? Can we follow Pat Berry's trajectory and pattern of Rose is great for three times and then we slide down, but we'll always be back. Is it enough for you to find confidence in that and give her a real legitimate fighting chance here? One weight up against a red hot fighter who appears title ready right now. I mean, before the Esparza fight, she had back-to-back -back wins over Zhang Wiley. I mean, you know, it just don't come a whole lot better at that weight class. Um, was it an aberrant performance or was there something else? I, You're asking me to answer a question I just can't. I just can't. I don't have enough information. It's, it's, a, it's, it's almost like the question for this bout, at least on the Rose side of things, right? Is this aberrant? Is the cyclical, uh, is the change everything that the doctor ordered, or is the change more of a product of, I don't know, of desperation, but yeah. searching for answers in all the wrong places or something like that? I don't know. I candidly don't know. Um, and with the time off and everything else, I, I, I'll say this. I'll say this. It would be very foolish to discount someone who's had the kind of success in her career, especially in the short amount of time that Rose Namajunas has had. Nevertheless, between the layoff, and between, again, this kind of almost like prevent defense game that Manolfio Rowe has, I personally believe that the odds makers are right to at least make Manolfio Rowe a slight favorite. I get that. I think that's actually the fair place to look. Whether or not that will be predictive ultimately of, you know, again, betting lines are always designed to induce betting, so we, we know that there's a caveat there. But nevertheless, like, who would I lean towards in this contest? I would lean towards Fioro, which isn't to say, again, skill for skill is she as talented? That's not really the argument. The argument is at this weight class, given the kind of game that Manon has, is it just the right formula to give someone like Rose Namajunas problems? Probably is the answer. But let's see what kind of magic Rose yeah, can come up with. But Rose has that ability to disguise a big strike as she did with the big head kick against, uh, you know, against Wei Li, as she did with the the, the perfect power punch against Yuan in the first fight to deliver greatness, to deliver, like you said, magic out of nowhere. I think it's going to be really key in this first round for Rose. 16-month layoff. We're not in a five-round title fight. She's won big fights like this with her back against the wall. Rose's victory over Andrade in that rematch was huge, essentially, to fuel that, that most recent arc of when she did deliver absolute greatness twice against Wei Li. She had to walk through hell against Andrade to do that. So it's like, Luke, I do, I, I want to pause on ever, like, truly doubting Rose's ability to do exactly what she's being asked to do, which is like take on this matchup that she took purposely because it, it fear, it made her, you know, draw fear, competitive fear to want to go. She has had the length in terms of time off in terms of if those photos tell you anything where this doesn't feel like a haphazard move to 125. It feels like she's been putting in the time to add muscle in, in bulk and bulk and almost kind of rebuild her body to a certain degree. So, Luke, for this specific matchup to come out and make a splash and make a statement, do you think we're going to see Rose shoot first 
the uh, in terms of trying to take this fight to the ground and try to be aggressive in that category to yes. try to open up yes. some some opportunities. We know what she can do as a as it using her grappling to set up submission. She's you know she's a she's playing chess out there, Luke. Uh, maybe we're gonna see her go for those takedowns and try to uh, aim directly at the hole in Pharaoh's game and try to beat her there. The, either way, though, Luke. That first round, the first five minutes are so key. You cannot give away the round. You cannot come out and be too tentative and be too strategic and then suddenly be down. Um, I got to see her do what she did in the first Andrade fight in the first round, which is arguably the best five-minute installation of who Rose is. When she's using that length and circling from the outside, the only question is, can she do that against this fighter? Can't you do that against a fighter who has the same reach and is two inches taller? A lot of questions here. A lot of questions. You have to love this fight. Dude, how, how are you going to beat? How are you going to beat Fioro letting her roam at range? How are you going to do that? Like it's it's not going to work for you. You cannot do that. I mean, even they have the same uh, arm reach, but again, leg reach that we don't measure it, so it's hard to say. But it's a pretty key component, and she's taller, so you would imagine there's probably some advantage here. You will lose. She, let's be very clear about this. A, game, a kickboxing with kickboxing range game in MMA against VRO, Rose Namunos will lose that. Uh, pressure is going to be, I would imagine, key. Getting her up against the fence is key. And yes, she has very good takedown defense. Again, 83% for the French woman here. Fine, she can defend a good takedown. But if you can just clinch with them, well, then you have elbows, then you have knees, then you can do all those other things that might be opened up that she's going to want to break away from. So you, the takedown might be beneficial if you can get it, but it's not required. It's all about constraining the space with which Benofio Rowe has to operate. That, I think, is key. So if you see, you know, Manon out there with all the space behind her, all the space between them, it's, it's you know, it's going to be a long night for Rose. But conversely, if she's able to collapse the space, Ball game, new ball game. Yeah, we'll see her if she can shoot early. We'll see the takedown defense from Manol. This is going to be so freaking interesting. I cannot wait for this fight. Come Saturday, I'll be talking to Rose Namajunas shortly after the conclusion of today's MK episode, Luke. So yes. get a lot. Of, hopefully get a lot of those questions answered in terms of her plans for Saturday and what she might look like in this new division. Um, who is more likely with a win? And let's say a finish. Let's say a dominant win. Who's more likely? And let's not undervalue Rose's name value. Who's more likely to catapult to a title shot with a win? Is it? Is it still Faro because of what they're building here in France with her? That's a tough one. Because Rose is a special fighter for the fan base. <clears throat> I would probably still say Menon because of she's got just more work done in the division so yes i would say that but i tell you what dude if rose goes up there and picks her up and drops her on her fucking head and you know you know takes her back and chokes her out or flying arm bars i mean could you really say that they wouldn't give her one especially if grasso wins again or something like that like you couldn't say that so i'd lean towards Manal if she gets it but uh dark horse candidate let's say rose with a win I mean, Rose is fighting a top contender in this division. What is that worth for a former champion moving up? It's worth a shitload. It's worth a shitload, yeah, you know? It, indeed it is. This is daring to be great shit. Happy to see Rose take this big swing. Luke, do you have anything else to say about the rest of this card? You mentioned a couple matchups. You mentioned a couple names to watch. It's not great. I do want to see if Benoit Saint-Denis. I just I mean, was that effortless, Luke? Benoit Saint-Denis. Well, that was just, it just felt natural, just do, right? Just I mean, doing it, skits and bits. Just all No, that's not skits and bits. It's... 
it's a possible seizure I just had to endure to, to pronounce that, but I, I tried. Hey, did you hear me? I don't know if you heard me yesterday, Luke, on the press conference I hosted, I but Martin Bader, Martin uh, Botter, our guy, the, the uh, PBC and Showtime language linguist, yes. uh, he, he told me, you know, if you want to do this right, you won't announce Jordanis Ugas as 54 Milagros as his nickname, Luke, which is a, a nod to Aroldis Chapman and his mother, whose first name is Milagros. That I would pronounce the San Quanchue Quatre L, you know, I I had it written down, so I'm not say it again. Say 54 again. I I I just gringoed it on purpose for you, but (laughs) I forgot it already, Luke. But I delivered it in real time, along with along with in Spanish and real non-gringo Spanish, the the Mexican hometown of Armando Resendiz. So I I really went for it yesterday, and I, you know, I didn't I didn't get any bad feedback from it. So hey. you know what? They mostly just appreciate the attempt. I mean, if you fuck it up too bad, they don't like it. But I've, I've, my experience has been, if you try for real, they usually are like, hey, thanks for not being a piece of shit. You know, that's really yeah. the... Well, Ugas is working on his English. I was able to talk with him and his uh, uh, his significant other and his manager and all that. And yeah. he claims, Luke, he said, give me 30 days and I will do another interview with you Ooh. in complete English and I will pull it off. You will see. So I'm, t- I'm going to take... Uh, Ugas up on his challenge. There, that would but... be a milagro if he could do that. You know what yes, I'm saying? Yeah, that would be a milagro. milagros, motherfucker. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. All right, Luke, that's it. Uh, you don't you have any other comments? I mean, Vulcan Ostemir is back, Luke. He's undefeated yeah. when fighting in Fort Lauderdale pubs, but let's see if he can get back on track because he used to be something. What is he yeah. now, Luke? What is he I now? don't know. I don't know. The only there's two other fights I'm paying attention to on this card. Like, as I mentioned before, Taylor Lapalus is on this card. He's a fighter worth paying attention to. The other one would be Farid, uh, or I'm not sure if it's Farid or Farid. I don't. Again, please forgive me. But the one of the Basharat brothers. So we all yes. know Javed Basharat. This is his brother. He's against uh, Clayton Rodriguez. That's a fun fight. That should be a really interesting test. I like that one. So there's a couple other names up and down, but yeah, it's not much. It's not much. Luke, topic number two. If we can slide and keep this great show moving, the best 90 minutes of combat sports you'll find anywhere. Demetrius Johnson had an interesting comment. Where what Luke? Before I read this quote, where should this be attributed to? Where did DJ say this? Uh, I wish we had the video. I forgot to send it to Mikey, so um, that's on us. But uh, he was on one of his streams, okay. Uh, and I, I, I found the video off of someone's TikTok. Um, but he, he was doing a stream, and someone pulled it, put it on TikTok, and I pulled it from there. The question DJ is essentially answering here is what's easier today, 2023, modern combat sports to win a world title in MMA or boxing? Here's Mighty Mouse's comment, and then we'll get Luke's reaction. He says, that's the thing about boxing. Mixed martial arts is the easiest sport to become champion in. When you fight boxing, it's boxing. Every person you fight in boxing is going to be good at boxing. When you fight MMA, you're going to have people who have significant big holes in them, right? You have a guy like Alex Pineda, six foot one, and he becomes a champion in MMA. You can have no wrestling experience and become a world champion. You look at Brock Lesnar, he became a world champion, and he had no stand-up whatsoever in terms of experience. That's why I feel MMA is the easiest to become a world champion. You can have deficiencies and still become champion. In boxing, you can't. You have to be a good boxer to become a champ. You just have to. That's a little bit loaded, that statement right there, Luke. Let's let's break this down. Is he onto something? And right now, is it easier if you were if you had a kid who was 10 years old and he was like, I'm gonna be a pro fighter, which lane am I going in? Is catcher the quickest way to the majors, Luke? Which sport is actually easier in your eyes to win a world title? Uh MMA. 
would be easier to win a world title. But there are some interesting caveats worth considering. Now, listen to what Demetrius said. He said world title. He didn't say UFC title. Um, so that's one distinction, which we'll, I'm sure, get to in just a second. The other thing I think is worth considering is doing what he did, which is defending a UFC title over time. Well, that is exceedingly difficult because by the time you get to that space, we, we talked about being audited, right? Where someone's going to find one of your weaknesses, and even though you're well-rounded, there's just going to be some kind of skill set discrepancy that one opponent's going to, or one or two or whoever, is going to be able to take advantage of. And so solving that puzzle and, and answering that challenge over time, especially when there are fewer weight classes, and that's the premier division, that might be more difficult than actually defending one of your boxing titles where you could take a mandatory like Canelo, where one, one fight you're fighting Bivol, okay, that's a crazy fight, but then you're fighting John Ryder the next one. You don't really get fights like that in UFC. It does. I mean, on occasion it can happen, but not to the same degree of regularity. So we got to be clear. Is it easier to win a title in Bellator, for example, because that would be a world title, or one, because that would be a world title, versus winning one in boxing? So that's what you have to consider. Also, what folks are going to bring up pretty considerably is, well, look, there's four different you know, major sanctioning bodies in boxing. It's easier to get one of those than it is to get the one UFC title. There might be a little bit of something to that, especially dependent on weight class. I do not think that's in any way true at heavyweight, uh, but... I could imagine some other weight classes where the debate could be a little bit more nuanced. But really, to me, BC, what this debate comes down to is basically two different things that I just don't think. Here, here's just the reality. A lot of MMA fans, and I know this for a fact, they're just not really sports fans. They don't watch a lot of other sports. Some do, of course, but the overlap between combat sports fans and team sports fans is not nearly as robust as people imagine. So I don't think they're really just understanding what goes in to other sports. Now, of course, boxing is a combat sport, but, but here's what I mean. Some of the understanding around sports. Guys like Gervonta Davis, for example, who is just now entering the pound-for-pound pound list, right? Just now. Um, the guy's been boxing since he was single digits, right? Single digits, he's been boxing. You're talking about people who have been doing this by the time they get to 26 years old, who have been boxing at a pretty considerable level for 20 years at that point. MMA simply has nothing like that, okay? They don't have in any way a fleshed out international, much less even national, um, real, uh, usable, valuable amateur system. MMA doesn't even really have an amateur system. I know there are some entities like the IMMAF and stuff like that, but these are very small scale operations compared to USA boxing, compared to the Olympics. These are nothing. Like what you have in MMA isn't even bordering on that. So just to get to that level, you have weeded out a considerable amount of people, at least for the championship level. Obviously, any dumbass can go get a boxing license and then get their ass kicked in a pro bout. That's that's not hard to do. But for the world title guys, you're talking about guys who by the age of 25 have often been doing it for 20 years, not always, but often. And you're talking about having to work their way through an amateur system that is significantly in every way vastly more robust and weeding out of uh, suboptimal talent. That's one thing yeah. I'd say. The second thing I'd say is everyone thinks that like because MMA, you have to train more. It's more difficult. Well, it might be more difficult to train and get good at MMA, but that's not what Demetrius said. Demetrius said winning a world title. Right. So you can win a world title. And again, this is heavyweight. So this is going to be a little bit different. Like Brock Lesnar, where your stand up really ain't shit. You don't really not really all that good at taking a punch, but you're big and you're strong. And you can wrestle your ass off. That might even be enough to do it. So training MMA might be harder. Getting good at MMA in some ways 
might be very difficult, but using that to win a title to me is easier. In boxing, I just I, MMA fans just don't want to give boxing any credit, but you got to come to terms with it. Please understand me. At the world title level, which is the only conversation we're having here, we're not, not talking about anything else. At the world title level, your everyone has all of the same skills in a much more or the, the the basic array of the same skills in a much more constrained, defined universe. MMA is exciting because it's unconstrained. You can bring so many different elements, but that's not what this is. It is a very tightly controlled environment, folks. Why do you think MMA strikers, even when they're older, get fucking washed by boxers whenever they spar or to the extent they even compete? It is because the margin for error in boxing among world title boxers is fucking close to zero. It is very, very narrow. Dude, you make a mistake of any kind of variety against Tank and dude, he will send your ass to the land of wind and ghost. And that's including other world champions he does that too. People think that because boxing Damn. doesn't have as many disparate elements, it's easier to master. And it's actually the opposite because there is a more constrained universe. The minute fine details become the thing that separate people. And those are at the world title level, exceedingly difficult to come by. MMA does not have that dynamic. It doesn't have the amateur system that weeds out and then promotes world title challengers or the eventual ones from the suboptimal guys and then pushes them out. It doesn't have any of that. And it has this vastly unconstrained universe, which is why we love it. But what that does is it opens up vast uh, deficiencies in defense that are really, really hard to solve for. Whereas in boxing, it's this tightly controlled universe <laughs> Fine details are very, 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 very hard to overcome. It is harder to win a world title in boxing than it is in MMA. You can be much, much less developed overall in, in, in a, a myriad weight classes in MMA and win a world title. That is significantly harder to do in boxing. Damn, we should have had this as a high court debate because, look, before hearing your take and before really letting – Demetrius words sink in and I think you're you're on to something here I would have knee-jerk been like you're crazy and the main point of why I would have said it's a lot easier to win a title in boxing it's just the structure of you know there's eight male weight classes in the UFC there's 17 in boxing with four recognized champions per those 17 divisions and then some of those bootleg secondary belts that we okay you know, the bootleg secondary belts i mean okay fair enough we're talking about that and the conversation True. changes i'm talking but about the are, real ones you know beyond the four recognized champions per division and we've been lucky lately to actually get undisputed champions you do have those you know interim secondary whatever even with that said i do think the wild card in in turning the argument back in your and mighty mouse's favor is that it comes down to this. There's so many ways to lose in MMA. Yeah, there's so many more skill sets you have to try to master, which can lead to if you are dominant in one skill set, even in the modern era, right? A Ronda Rousey, when women's MMA was still in a very fertile space, that one skill set can be more dominant. It is rare. What DJ said in that final quote was you have to be a good boxer to become a world champion. You just have to. It is rare in boxing that we get a Deontay Wilder, even though Wilder, let's give him credit, won a bronze medal in the Olympics. Like he, It's not right. like he had you know, negative technique or, or, or training, <laughs> but it is rare. It is rare when somebody's just a slugger and they can take that all the way to the top. MMA, we do have to remember, it's really only been around 30 years, right, in, in, in what we know it today. So it's as if Luke – 
they're still developing strategies and counter strategies where I like what you said, boxing, you do, it just come down to the very basics at that highest level mixed in with, of course, who's got the heart, who's got the stamina, who's got the willpower, all that. Also, also something else we see, I mean, you're like, oh, well, there's more titles to be had, not just the four per weight class, but there's more weight classes. Guys, there are more weight classes because way, way, globally speaking, way more people train and compete in boxing than MMA. Now, we should note something. That is changing, and that is changing very rapidly. That won't necessarily be true forever. In fact, the scales could tip at some point in 50 or 100 years, who's to say? But right now, the worldwide participatory rates from the data that we have, I looked up some earlier, just in England alone, it's like a factor of seven to one. The gigantic difference in terms of how many people are training, uh, men and women, in professional services to become fighters versus boxing or MMA. Now, and of course, UK is going to be skewed because boxing is hugely popular there. I understand that. But again, when you have a worldwide Olympic system, you are pulling in people from all <coughs> over the world at very young ages, everywhere, putting them together in this international competition. I mean, guys, you know, who win the Golden Gloves, that's great. National championships, that's great. But then the Junior Olympics and Olympics all together, dude, you're fighting Irishmen, you're fighting Russians, you're fighting Cubans. The Cubans have a state-sponsored program. The Chinese have a state-sponsored program. It goes on and on like this. The let the talent pool as it exists today, again, that could change, is significantly deeper in boxing. Significantly. Yeah, no this is not an argument for me to saying, you got to like boxing, you got to watch it. That's not what I'm saying. And also, to your point, one more time, heavyweight in both cases is, you know, yes, it yeah. might be easier to win one title one way or the other because that's just a fucking mess. Fine. But when you get further down, uh, I just don't think folks realize you have to master the most granular details, and you got to do it against a vastly deeper talent yeah. pool than we get here. That's fucking harder to do. It just is. That's why, you know, there's a short list of guys. It's rare. It happens every, you know, five, six years. You'll see it, whatever. But boxers who literally did not put on a pair of gloves for the first time until they were 18, 19 years old, right? People like... I mean, you know, Deontay Wilder was a late bloomer in that regard. Sergio Martinez, we've seen Anthony Joshua. We've seen champions get to a high level quickly without a deep and decorated amateur system. But that that's rare, man. That's rare. It really comes down to that. I don't think you guys are wrong. I think you win the argument at the end of the day. So we don't need to get high. Luke. But again, I do want to say this, though. I do think that like what St. Pierre did and what what G or uh, what DJ did, where you defend a title for several years. That might be the hardest thing uh, yeah. between boxing and MMA because you just no don't doubt. get any cupcake shit. You're you're relatively active. You're gonna get one style that might be good for you. You might get another style that's an absolute horrific one. And the damage that you can incur in boxing it can be significant as well, obviously. But I feel like in MMA, the training, the fight damage, it is much more accumulative in a short span in certain cases. I think defending a UFC title over the course of several years might be the hardest thing. Uh, versus defending any kind of weight class no title doubt. in boxing. But just capturing a world title, it's easier in MMA. Yes. I wouldn't have said that, yes, but I think it's right. Let's keep it moving here. Topic number three. This is interesting, Luke. This is breaking, I think, in the past 24 hours, right? It appears that Saudi Arabia has bought a minority ownership stake in the PFL. And if the language from this report is true, Luke, it appears that the 2024 launch of PFL's pay-per-view super fight division or you know however you want to say it a, a consistency of pay-per-view shows involving some of those big crossover signings like francis Ngannou, jake paul the female boxers like serrano and and clarissa shields and savannah marshall well luke thomas 
Those are all going to take place in Saudi Arabia, it appears. According to reports, $100 million of investment money going in, being now inserted into the PFL's mix. This is a huge part of the idea of what Don Davis and company have said publicly, that they're all in. They're going for it. They are making a run at becoming the number one league with UFC at the top right now. Uh, this is a big step forward that does not come without any lingering questions in a lot of ways, but it is a continuation of the expansion in combat sports in Saudi Arabia. It'll bring up the topic of sports washing, which is necessary. Began with WWE doing their, their shows. We call them blood money shows. And now we saw big time boxing move over there, Anthony Joshua, and then some. So timing wise, it feels right. Luke, when it comes first on a business standpoint, the money involved, how big of a power move is this for PFL? to that idea of trying to compete with number one. Yeah, so let's take the, and people are like, oh, it's a political element. We're not trying to have that, but we have to have a discussion about, remember, this isn't just a Saudi business, right? That's just sort of independent guys who got a bunch of money who want to use it. This is a direct arm of that government. Literally, it's the sovereign wealth yeah. fund. It comes directly from the government. So let's be clear about that. We'll have some of those conversations in a minute. But you're asking more about the business considerations. Why would PFL want to do this? It doesn't take a genius to figure it out, right? I mean, if they're going to buy Bellator, which is, I'm told, they're the leading candidates to still do it. I don't know what the holdup is, and I don't know exactly when this is going to get finished but i would imagine that a cash infusion um, from the sovereign wealth fund of saudi arabia might facilitate some of these acquisitions i guess we'll see but it's they said explicitly it's designed to help them sign premier <coughs> talent right that's exactly what it's for if you're going to offer francis Ngannou, you know a million or, or obviously millions to fight for your organization and his opponent might be worth a million or two just to sign the dotted line you got to get some cash to do that dude i mean just realize this I said it before, of every dollar made in the MMA industry, UFC makes 90 cents of it. 90 cents. They get 90% of every dollar in the entire industry. Uh, you can say that you have a problem or don't, depending on everyone's perspective on this. It's a complicated debate, but you've got to get money from somewhere. They have raised PFL, significant amounts of capital from venture capitalists, but I wonder, is that well running dry? How much of that you can really go back to? And we have seen, at least again, political implications notwithstanding, on the Qatari government, on the UAE government, and as well now in the Saudi government, this desire to use their various sovereign wealth funds to invest in professional sports for various purposes. So you've got people wanting to spend money, I guess is my point. And then people, like if you're a non-UFC promoter and you're on national television, your ones, your Bellators, whatever their future is, and PFL, like you need a cash infusion if you want to get premier talent, especially if you're going to move into that pay-per-view space, BC, right? You want to move yeah. into the pay-per-view space. you got to <clears throat> buy pay-per-view talent should they become available. That's really what this is all about. Now, there's more to the story. Um, there's supposed to be a MENA, sort of Middle East, Northern Africa, PFL movement, eventually hosting shows in Saudi Arabia. So there's more to this relationship than just the cash infusion, and we're going to be part of it. But, you know, look, you dude, even the hometown company for me, Monumental Sports, this is the company of, of billionaire Ted Leonsis. They own the Mystics, they own the Wizards, and they own the Capitals. They just took, I think, a gigantic, I think five-plus billion cash infusion uh, or, or something like that from the Qatari government, if, if my memory serves. I'll double-check here so I don't dead-wrong myself in real time. But this is a growing we want to call it movement or event really happening in sports. And it was inevitable. Last thing, remember, there are some geopolitical considerations where Saudi Arabia would want to compete with the UAE. UAE is tight with UFC, right? They sure. flash entertainment used to be owned, but they obviously do a lot of shows with Fight Island and everything else. This is the Saudi side trying to compete with the UAE side. 
PFL is probably going to be your best bet if you want to get into MMA. I, I, from a business perspective, it makes a lot of sense. Let me read a couple of pieces of facts from the Bloody Elbow report. Uh, according to the Financial Times, that PFL investment deal is worth $100 million, according to the reporting. With Saudi Arabia in particular, they're calling it the SRJ Sports Investments is the company that was formed here. But it's using that, that, that government fund that you talked about. And a follow-up from SportCal reported that Saudi plans to eventually host and bankroll a substantial number of PFL pay-per-view events with SRJ chairman Bander Bin Morgan now sitting on the PFL board. You mentioned that potential expansion league in that part of the world. But Luke, it has felt inevitable, like I said, ever since WWE, then Anthony Joshua going there for like $75 million. The golf and soccer world advancements. There's a lot of money there. There's potential that Saudi could become this Las Vegas-like destination for combat sports because they can bankroll so high to make these big events happen. I mean, if Fury versus Zeus, it won't be a Vegas like destination, dude, we're talking about a people who are, let's just be clear. They are political extremists. Gambling is not allowed. Alcohol is not allowed. It will not be that. No. Okay. Fair points on that, on that side of it. But could it become that destination in combat sports site alone? If we see Fury Usyk happen, it's going to happen in yeah. Saudi Arabia, right? They're going to spend the type of money that's going to make it. I mean, so it becomes this thing, Luke, where particularly in boxing, which has a big Saudi Arabia connection. Now they have their own promotion that just signed Alexander Usyk. There's this idea that, like, we've got to come to terms with it or not. Like, you're either going to, you know, pick it outside some building somewhere against the, the human rights uh, record of this area of the world, or you're going to buy in and understand that the biggest problem in boxing often is the best fights not getting made. And often they're not getting made because there's not a, as much money at stake for everybody to make people work together that are against their own, you know, sort of business and financial plans. When there is a ton of money, when a Mayweather Pacquiao arrives on the scene, when a, you know, Joshua Klitschko, when these big fights that kind of come up, uh, you know, from a distance, then we suddenly see networks working together. If there's going to be this type of cash infusion out there on the regular and this type of investment in both boxing and MMA, you're going to probably end up getting some of those really big super fights that seem like only dreams. It's going to be the continued, it's going to help in a lot of ways, the continued growth of the sport, but it is a little, there are receipts in that area, Luke. There are sort of things that you're going to have to be okay with moving forward. It's kind of always been that way in combat sports, because if you dig deep and find out who really are the investors in a lot of ways and where this goes, there's, it seems like combat sports is always ducking around a kin of hand around this corner or even the mob, which once controlled boxing, you know, back in the forties and fifties and sixties, there's sort of always been that element. This is going to bring that out a lot, but this is a major power move that, that goes in line with that advancement of live golf of, of, of everything we've seen out there. Look, they're making a run over there for better or worse in Saudi Arabia. Like this, this doesn't feel like a one-off. This feels like the future. That's where I echo sort of the idea of a Vegas-like destination, even if it's not tied into the debauchery and gambling and in that side of it. This seems to be the future for these can't miss ridiculously big super fights. It could be. I mean, we're talking about a sport where, you know, what do we call it? We call it prize fighting. Remember the back and forth between Gervonta and Ryan Garcia? And he's like, it's prize fighting, stupid. It's not about honor. It's about getting cash. And in a world where that's true, the people who are the highest bidders are going to win a lot. I mean, that's just the reality. So it's a little bit more complicated in team sports, especially ones with European or North American financial backing that can't match the Saudi experience. 
but there are a lot of other reasons why they would be better destinations for lots of different kinds of people and might be able to still do you know extraordinary business for the vast majority of people who don't want to align with either those political interests or that part of the world or travel or whatever so there's there's that to be considered um but i think i i would say i find their involvement in mma inevitable and this was inevitable i didn't know when it was going to happen i didn't know what it was going to look like but after the basic takeover of golf basically and everything else although by the way i mean i do think regulators are going to break that up eventually that's not really a sports washing consideration more just an antitrust one but i don't think that that union is going to last but neither here nor there um their desire to do this uh, with the ample cash that they have is significant. And I want to make one point about the sports washing, if I may. Listen, ultimately, what is the right answer here? I really have no idea. I have no idea. Like, what is my culpability in an industry where I have to cover? I'm not going to Saudi Arabia. I'm never going to go to Saudi Arabia. But what would be my culpability as someone who works in this space, you know, profiting off my, for example, our YouTube videos where we talk about this kind of stuff? I, you know, it's a complicated question. Uh, in the end, like, are we as culpable as we imagine ourselves to be or not? I, I, I don't know, but I just want folks to understand like what the aim of sports washing is. People are like, oh, it doesn't work because they still know that Saudi Arabia has a terrible human rights record. And they, they do. I mean, they, uh, their record is endless. They persecute other, uh, Islamic minorities. They've executed and continue to execute despite a moratorium children. Um, they, uh, throw dissidents in jail for, uh, peaceful protest. They have thrown people in jail and executed them for even things they've said on Twitter. They obviously are responsible for the murder of the Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. I mean, we can go on and on. Their record right. of abuses is endless. But the point is not to make people forget about that exactly. The point is to make their relationship to the rest of the world, their acceptance in these games, their acceptance in these sports, their acceptance by virtue of business relationships just that acceptable here's what you have to understand john mcenroe in the 80s was offered millions i believe to have a exhibition match against bjorn borg in apartheid south africa and he decided he wasn't going to do that he didn't want to take the money and he didn't want to go participate at a time when there was this massive apartheid regime which eventually broke apart thank god but the point i wanted to make is sports washing is not to be, for people to go oh i think the saudis are great at least not at this stage Sports washing is designed for them, for McEnroe, to go through with the exhibition, to take the money, to make you look the other way in terms of aligning business interests. And yeah. I would say, whatever perspective people come down on on this one, it is working. You can turn on ESPN and you can get Saudi Pro League uh, results on the crawl on the top of the ESPN website. That was unthinkable 10 years ago. Now it is our reality, and I think it's only growing. Yeah, and it, there is a limit, though, to how you address it and how upfront you are about acknowledging certain things. You know, WWE was heavily criticized their first couple of shows in Saudi for running during the pay-per-views propaganda video that 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 right. was aggressive right. and, 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 you know, designed by the Saudi government. And that was seen as certainly just not only looking a blind eye, just take, taking it maybe too far. You know, moving forward, people are going to have to either take their stands or be upfront and be open about, you know, this is a business and this is why I'm doing this. I mean, you know, should suddenly Francis Ngannou turn a blind eye to the, to the, you know, to the alleged abuses and, and, and not fight there and not fight Tyson Fury there and not potentially take a PFL super fight fight there. I mean, that that's going to be an individual battle for everybody, but it is hard. Like, I don't want to see Ty 
Fury, or sorry, I don't want to see Ngannou, who has t- already taken such a big stand for the 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 way MMA fighters are dealt with on the biggest you know stage financially. Suddenly, like, is it fair to say, well, then he needs to be that same fighter for every justice battle out there? That seems a little unfair, Luke. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, though, if you want to take Saudi money, you have to answer questions about Saudi money. And and also, folks have said, like, hey, doesn't the U.S. government have a former relationship in terms of arms sales and various other things with the Saudi government? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. So there's plenty of ways in which to have a conversation about who's complicit, who's good. I'm simply pointing out the one thing that folks should understand is PFL is an independent private business. The Saudis getting involved with them, that is a direct arm of the government. That's not the same. This would be like the like if uh, the, the only equivalent would be if the PFL got a cash infusion of $100 million from the U.S. government. Then there would be, a you know, that would be a similar kind of culpability in terms of, uh, you know, what, what roles does the U.S. play in the wider Absolutely. world in their crimes. So it's, it's, it's a complicated debate, and everyone's going to have to decide for themselves what the answer is. But the Saudis are here, and I think that their profile, again, for better or for worse, it's only going to grow. We've got to figure well, out what's going to happen. If PFL's got 100 more million to deal with for, for free agency, for luring those big names, I wonder if this is the the change that needed to happen to make the Bellator sale happen. Who knows? We'll see what happens. But this yeah, is we'll a see. big power move from the PFL. Just the same. Topic number four, Luke. Who's next for Sean O'Malley, the newly crowned Bantamweight champion, who will be the first title defense? Would it be a Cheeto Vera? Would it be a Marab? Is Aljo have any shot at getting the rematch? Well, Dana White was asked about this after the Dana White Contender Series on Tuesday night. And he wasn't so pro Marab getting the next shot. Let's listen in on Dana's critical take on the friendship at Bantamweight between Marab and Aljo. What is the likelihood that it would be Marab? I know that there's some controversy of what him not wanting to, to fight. He wants Aljo to have the rematch. What's, the, what's your idea for that? Everybody in this room and everybody who watches this video knows how I feel about this shit. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I hate it. Hate it. And uh, if that's, why did you even get into this sport? If that's your mentality and the way that you think, I don't even want the title. I don't even want the championship. We're friends. We're this, we're that. This is not, you can be friends with everybody in this business. There's a lot of nice people in this business, a lot of good people. This is not about friendship. This is about finding out who the best in the world is. And if you don't want to find out who the best in the world is, this is not the place for you. You should be somewhere else. There's plenty of places to fight where they don't give a shit what you do. Doesn't work here. Luke, we don't do gimmick fights in this promotion unless it's uh, no. Zuck versus uh, Musk. Yeah, Here's listen, what... C- CM Punk, I mean, that's this. we're trying to figure out who's the best. Is it CM Punk? Yeah, or well, Musk, you know? let, me, let me tee you up like this. I'm heavily critical of Dana this calendar year. I think I have a right to be. Some people think I take it too far. It's fine. We're trying to be upfront and always be uh, honest with you on our feelings. Uh, but hold on, hold on. I don't understand why people get bitter at you and me yeah, but for criticizing the, the guy. I know, the I know. I just, I'll just i say it very quickly. And I'll, I'll just two, two seconds. Just the, the most powerful guy at the at the head of a monopoly of the entire industry. We're supposed to yeah. – like, what, what the fuck? I mean, okay. okay. With that said, while this is harsh and while I don't want to see Marav – have to really jump through an accelerated run of hoops as some punishment for not wanting to fight his teammate. His teammate's not the champion anymore, but I'm not mad at Dana for this. 
it's too aggressive. Is, is it too extreme? Is it too much down that road? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's Dana. It is. But at the same time, he should have this stance. At the same time, he should basically lay out the facts, which is if you want to be a great friend, that's fine. But it will get in the way of your aspirations. It will get in the way of your opportunities. That's not the quickest way to Dana's heart. The quickest way is taking chances, last minute names, you know, filling in, whatever. Like, that's the quickest way there. This is not the quickest way. There will be a penalty in this decision, just like in our own corporate walks. There's decisions we have to make that, you know, sometimes, yeah, that could come back to haunt me. That's not going to help me in the long run. But that's the reality. I don't like Dana being completely naive to the idea that this could happen, that DC could be such a friend of Cain Velasquez that he doesn't want to, you know, fight, have to fight him for the title. I want to live in the world where that can be a thing, but I don't think you can get mad at Dana for being mad about it. He's the promoter. He wants to make the best fight the best. I'm not going to rail on him for this. Even if I like, look, like, I don't want, you can't make Marab the the redhead stepchild here. You can't make him have to fight three more times for the title, but if he has to skip the next title shot, as some sort of receipt from this, Luke, that is the promoter's right, in my opinion, even if it's harsh. That is the promoter's right. Did they offer the fight to Marab? I'm t- I've, I the, don't the think that they did. The narrative seems to be that they offered him the, the fight when, when uh, Sterling was champion, and that was like an obvious no-go. And? What's the problem with that? Right. So, uh, so look, what, what, what should be the fervor, if you have some for Dana here, that that the fact that Sterling's not the champion anymore, so that should reset all those calculations? That... I mean, first of all, I just think dressing up Marab's decision, which isn't to say I think his decision-making is wise, but dressing up his decision as some kind of bizarre function of him not wanting to be the best. I mean... Okay, that's that's tired, it's, but that's... It's just Dana. insanely yeah. ridiculous. Like, why yeah. are we even entertaining that? That part is crazy. But okay, let's have a different kind of conversation, which is the one I think that you want to have, which is, hey, dude, at some point... How much are you going to let your career pass you by in service to your friend when these opportunities are hard to get and then fleeting? That's a fair point. That's a fair point. But to my knowledge, they haven't offered him the fight, not, not since the not since 292 anyway. And so that sort of like, did they offer to him? And he said, no. I mean, that's sort of the thing. I mean, even Aljamain Sterling, I think, has said since this on social media, I could be wrong, that, um, you know, hey, if Marab is next, then I'm okay with it, which is, you know, sort of diffuses the whole thing. I, I do think that, like, look, it is an uncomfortable tension between I've aligned this world where I have uh, teammates and friends and a gym, and it all kind of works under these arrangements, and asking me to blow that up for a personal uh, opportunity carries a series of risks. Um I think we need to be respectful of that and understanding of that. Listen, I would say this. If Aljo doesn't get it and then Marab turns it down in protest, well, now we have a different conversation. Now we have Marab taking some kind of political stance that is totally self-immolating that just doesn't make any sense. But if they're not going to give it to Aljo and then they do offer it to Marab and he takes it, what is what is the issue? I just don't, I just don't get it. Well, I think, look, the... the- the issues with Dana White being that harsh are exactly what you said, that it's painting Marab as not putting his career first and wanting the best, when in reality, Sterling is not the champion. But if the receipt from making that friendly decision is he has to wait one fight, meaning O'Malley's first fight would be against Cheeto, who I would think, by the way, the promotion would much rather want that to be O'Malley's first title defense. There's a storyline there. It's a style matchup that would fa- that would favor O'Malley compared to Marab. If it's just one fight, 
and then Marab has to beat one more or wait for it, that's not an issue. If it's a longer punishment after that as a way to send a message, or if you are doing dirty stuff of saying, okay, if you want to fight for the title, you got to go through Sterling first, your old teammate. Like, no, this isn't WWE. They don't have to do that. But yeah. if Marab has to wait because of this situation, one more fight, to me, at the end of the day, sometimes business is business, and I get that. Even if Yeah, let me just, listen, listen. Here's, here's my view on this. If in the end, Marab throws himself under the bus for reasons that don't make sense. Again, something like Aljo not even being offered it, Marab being first and then just saying no because he thought Aljo should have gotten it or something. Fine. Now we can say, well, dude, this is unnecessarily self-punitive. But let's get to that point. Let's get to the point where he's yeah. offered the fight and let's see what he does with it. And then we'll make a judgment call from there. Yeah. Also, let's get to the point. Let's roll another now. Yeah, yeah, right? You know? I mean, you don't know how it feels. Turn the little. radio up, right? Yeah, that's yeah. how it goes? Yeah, that's what it is. All right, topic number five. How about this for boxing super fights? How about this for getting very interested about what the future could bring? I was in L.A. yesterday for the Canelo We have the video. Charlo. We have the video. Of course, but I was in LA, LA yesterday for the Canelo Charlo undercard press conference. We know how loaded this boxing calendar year is. But I ran into somebody, the great Manuk Akopian of both the LA Times and boxing scene. And look, he was fresh off his boxing scene duties of interviewing one Canelo Alvarez. So I want to just read a two couple points here before throwing in this video of why this whole thing matters. One, According to reporting from Alan Dawson, formerly of, of uh, Insider, now working for ProBox TV, 12 days, 13 days ago, he wrote a story that according to his reports, Errol Spence and Bud Crawford had 30 days after their July 29th pay-per-view to activate the rematch clause. Yesterday was August 29th. There's your 30 days. As far as I'm concerned, I don't think anybody has activated it. If that means Spence Crawford 2 will not be next, then do you have to remember after Bud Crawford beat Spence, there was a little bit of talk, even on the show about me saying, I know Crawford said he doesn't think he can ever go up to 60, forget 68, but I think he could be competitive against Canelo at 68 because he's that great. I said that. They asked Canelo about that. He said, forget it. I don't want to fight him at some small weight. You know, you're never going to give me credit. But then Bud Crawford went on the Joe Rogan experience. That's when he told Joe that he's actually willing to fight the winner of Canelo Charlo at 168 pounds for all four super middleweight belts. So our guy Manu caught up with Canelo and asked him again his thoughts on that. Did the opinion change? Let's listen into this. Is this an intriguing matchup for you? Are you serious? Could you seriously consider this fight if it's if it's there for the taking for you? Look, we don't I, I respect Crawford. He's a great fighter. And I I always say that. No, no disrespect him, but uh, you know, uh, sometimes it's, it's it's a little crazy that people talking about uh, I'm gonna face uh, two uh, a small fighter like Charlo. He's big, which he's big, and they everybody's talking about if I'm gonna face Crawford, uh, fighter 147, who is smaller than Charlo. So no make says no make no make no make sense when you guys say that right now. We, we I don't understand, right? Because you're talking about um, I take Charlie he's two way classes lower than me, and then you're talking about Crawford and then and, and this and that. At the end of the day, I don't I don't want to have credit 
to face a, a, a graphic, right? So no matter what, but uh, you know, you never know. You never know in boxing. Absolutely. I'll go up, up and down and fight everybody out there. So it's possible. Why not? It's possible. I, I, Why you're, not? You're a businessman, Canelo. I'm sure if it makes if it makes business sense, you'll. It makes sense. I'm I'm down. Do it. I always. I don't. I don't care who is there. I'm. I'm always able to fight anybody. So look, I want to tee you up with this because I read this extended <laughs> comments at length. So just if you didn't get that, Canelo previously was only against the idea of Crawford. One, because he didn't believe he can cut down and be effective below 68. Two, because he says you'd never give me any credit. And you have to respect Canelo still in the second half of his prime, trying to only make the biggest fights. It's why he wanted to rematch Bivol, another division higher. And we were like, dude, what about Benavidez? What about these other fights? He's basically saying that because Crawford's so good, because Crawford now isn't asking him to cut down and wait, and because it appears the boxing public would really enjoy that fight and actually would give him credit if he won because Crawford, although moving up three weight classes, which is incredible if this would happen, he's finally going, look, if you want me to do that and you guys would give me the credit, then maybe I also could move weight. He said that. He told Manuk he also would be willing to consider the idea of cutting back down in weight again. Luke, this coincides overnight with a tweet from Terrence Crawford that says Canelo versus Crawford is definitely by far the biggest fight in boxing. Is that true? And do you believe that we could see Terrence Crawford against the winner of the September 30th Canelo Charlo fight? Okay, so is it the biggest fight in boxing, a Canelo versus Crawford fight? I don't know affirmatively, but when you think of any fight you could make in boxing, it's got to be at worst, in terms of its size, top three. Right, maybe there's maybe there's a Fury Joshua matchup scenario, something Fury else. Come on, Fury, Fury Usyk. I mean, was that the commercial success that Fury Joshua would be? I don't know. I mean, okay, but fine, fine. These are these are these are the ones we're talking about. Make no mistake, BC. Tell me if I'm wrong, and I want to finish my answer. But just tell me if I'm wrong. Canelo Crawford is in that space. It is in if you did space. it at 68 for the undisputed title and Crawford yes. moved up three weight divisions immediately yes. after beating Spence on a one-sided fashion, yeah. this could be a monster fight. Monster because fight. this is fucking extreme monster. daring to be great. Extreme, dude. dude. I fucking love this shit, okay? Like I said, <laughs> learned my lesson about Bud Crawford and the Spence fight. It would be very hard for me to pick against him uh, ever again. I mean, that's not quite true, but you know, anytime soon, it ain't happening, especially if he goes to 154, or whatever. I fucking love this idea. Nothing. Dude, I thought, you know, heading into Spence Crawford, hey, we'll get a rematch out of this. He beat him so bad, it's not even relevant. There's a conversation about what the future for Spence looks like at 54, too, by the way, because obviously sure. Charlo, his teammate, is got, got all the belts there still, but whatever, or you know, most of the belts are anyway. But okay, so there's that, but forget that part. For Crawford to dare to be this great with the momentum he's built, dude, here's what he did he got a winning hand in this one in the most dramatic of ways. Like it's hard to imagine a scenario, BC, for Spence Crawford that could have gone better for Crawford than the way that it went. Yes. And he had, he didn't cash out and say, I'm done. He said, let me collect all these chips. 
and push him right back in the middle. His popularity has never been bigger. People uh, have never listened to his opinions more than they do now. They've never been more interested in him. He has already, and some other factors at play, obviously, he has already begun to turn the tide. Before, I was like, oh, this is a silly-ass thing he said on the Joe Rogan show. Now even Canelo, who before dismissed it, to the point you just made, has turned around. Dude, let me say this. Showtime, PBC, whoever the fuck. Right. If Canelo beats Charlo on September 30th, you have to make this fight. You have to make this fight. Who would say no? Who would say this is a stupid fight? We don't need this is ridiculous. Charlo, excuse me, uh, Crawford has no chance. Canelo, you know, this is a waste of his time. Canelo's not saying it's a waste of his time. We know it'd be one of the biggest fights in boxing. It would be one of the most extreme boxing feats. And let's just put it on the record now. If Crawford actually gets this fight, and he actually beats Canelo at 168. BC, my question back to you. If he does that, and these are big ifs, if he does that, does he earn a place in boxing's Mount Rushmore? Because he's already an all-time great. He's already already a Hall of Famer. Those are givens. Now we're talking about the rarefied era. Okay, he's already a three-division champion, and the first male fighter to be four belt undisputed in two weight classes. If he beat Canelo at 68, moving up three weight classes to then become a three division undisputed champion, this would be a power move that I think would only be equaled had Roy Jones, after beating John Ruiz for a heavyweight title, had he retired right there at age 34, I believe he was, and never fought again, you could have had an argument that Roy Jones at that point is, was better than Sugar Ray Robinson, was the was the greatest of all time, right? If we had never seen him get knocked cold and linger for too long. If Crawford makes his power move, here's why that's beautiful. Because Crawford dominated Spence in the way that he did and took his standing as one of the greatest fighters of this era and then projected it out as, hold on, like the one of the greatest fighters of all time maybe, the immediate response from boxing historians was, oh, crap, too bad Crawford if he really is this great, spent most of his career, especially at welterweight, on the other side of the street. For the record, Crawford tried to get Pacquiao in a fight for like five years. It just never got big enough where Pacquiao was like, it's worth the risk, and they never did it. There were a lot of people saying, damn, too bad Crawford spent time, all that time fighting washed up Khan and Brooke because ability-wise, he's showing you that he's Mayweather Pacquiao level, Sugar Ray Leonard level. He's showing you that he could be off of this one fight if you mix it with everything he's accomplished. But the only way right now for 35-year-old Terrence Crawford to double down on, on the chance to maximize his legacy would be to do these type of things. The Canelo one at 68 is the ultimate. But even if he fought Jermel Charlo, win or lose against Canelo to try to get another shot at an undisputed championship, this time at 154, it would still be in that direction we're talking about, where Crawford just got the biggest win of his career. He's now getting his flowers. He's doing the world tour on every show, podcast, and parade. And now it's sort of like, oh, crap, how great is he really? Is he really Sugar Ray Leonard Floyd Mayweather level? Is he really up there? Certainly looked it against Spence. If he does either of these power moves and beats Charlo at 54 or or Canelo at 68, yeah, holy shit, Luke. We'd have to recalibrate exactly where we would put him because this would be in this era, in in this day and age of boxing stuff, you just don't see. Stuff that, you know, Manny Pacquiao did 
winning titles in eight divisions and making huge leaps. And Roy Jones, as I mentioned, you know, winning a title at one at turning pro at 154 and then winning a title at heavyweight or, you know, Tommy Hearns, Roberto Duran climbing up in weight constantly and being factors at these high divisions. It's all time historic shit. Terrence Crawford, if the Spence rematch really isn't happening, Terrence Crawford has a very interesting decision on his next move. Does he stay at Walter Wade, Walter Wade and welcome a boot tennis and try to do a big fight there? Or is that too much risk? given the opportunity to double down or does he look at that Canelo Charlo fight? And like I said, fight either one coming off of there, but if it is Canelo, as you mentioned, and if the powers that be Showtime PBC are all sitting around, talk about it. There's no way they wouldn't go forward with this. If Crawford's really willing to go to 68 and do this and test his greatness. I mean, dude, Sugar Ray Leonard came back from retirement, beat Marvin Hagler in that disputed decision to win the middleweight title after moving up two weight classes. And then in his next fight, by the way, went up to 168 to fight Donnie Lalonde for a super middleweight and light heavyweight title. Um, that was considered wild and daring to be great. This is on another level than that. Seriously, as great as Sugar Ray Leonard after beating Hagler and going up and fighting Lalonde and getting up off the canvas and, and putting it on him, as much as that was great, this is Canelo we would be talking about, or even Charlo as defending undisputed champion. Yeah, Crawford's got a short window here, Luke, to do insane shit and i think we also have to give canelo credit for listening to the you know to the facts available and going all right you guys really want this i'm down do you think there's a potential career reinvention late for canelo to go down in weight rather than up and kind of return to where he was at 154 on his initial rise slower than everybody but great timing, great power, great IQ. I wonder if Canelo's now now looking at the landscape and going, yeah, I could go up against Bivol and be over my head. But what if I am able to cut back down to the 60 area? Or, or what if these guys are crazy enough to move up against me? Could we be seeing fighting guys like Crawford and Spence at catchweights? I don't know. It's an interesting new the idea. For the, the catchweight part is interesting because it removes the belt. So I don't know how that yeah. would go. But I'm with you. Like, do we saw Canelo 175? Like, okay, Bivol is really, really good. But, you know it's too much it's too much like there's a limit for everybody uh 160 168 that area canelo obviously is still the man so or pretty close to it and i guess we have to see it at 60 but um you know listen here's what also what i need to say if you're canelo because listen does canelo want to fight david benavidez you know does he want to fight david benavidez i have a feeling he probably doesn't because it's a tough ass fight and the reward is not going to be, you know, it's, it would be big if he beat him, obviously. Hey, but but he's not going to avoid it. He's just not going to go out of his way to do it right now. That's is right. That true? That's right. That's a true statement. I, I think that's. I think that's right. I mean, you know, there's a conversation about whether he should be fighting David Benavides at this stage, and you know, he's fighting. He's not. So you know, say what you want to say about it. This is a way for him to be like, okay, well, if I'm not going to fight David Benavides, who could I fight that would the public would be legitimately interested in in seeing me compete, even if it's this outrageous circumstance, dude? It's Terence Crawford. It's Terrence Crawford. That's the fucking guy. So you make that fight. It's not like the David Benavidez conversation goes away, but it certainly gets put on the back burner for a little while. And again, if Crawford wins that one, dude, I mean, you're just talking about witnessing a moment in history that you may never witness again in combat sports. Like yeah. that, that's, that's on the fucking table. And just to update what's going on at 54, because it may affect both Spence and Crawford moving forward. You have the, the Ford belt champion, Charlo, fighting Canelo. But when they step into the ring, he has to give up one of those titles. Tim Zhu will then become the full champion. It looks like Tim Zhu is rumored to potentially be defending against Brian Mendoza coming up, Luke, in Australia, which is a very interesting fight. But yesterday at that undercard press conference, the co-feature to Canelo Charlo is an incredible uh, special attraction at 154. Jesus Ramos Jr., the unbeaten 22-year-old slugger against Erickson Lubin. 
both were saying when they were talking about what's at stake, they mentioned Spence's name as a potential, you know, fight. So if Spence is going to kind of take his time and test the waters at 54, there's a lot of fun fights coming, man. A lot of big time fun fights coming. All right. I think we can squeeze him in here. If we go quick, Luke, we can close with the return of some fan submissions. Morningcombat at gmail.com is the email home where you can send your BS into us. And we take the time to unwrap it piece by piece, painstakingly. It's called fan subs. Enjoy it. You've got mail. Viewers. Male viewers, indeed. Uh, Saul hitting us. Greetings from the Kentucky State Fair. My favorite thing about the fair is the food. Started with a corn dog and cheese chili fries, then a large mango margarita and a huge bag of candy topped off with the fresh arepa. A very attractive woman came up to me and told me she loves my shirt. I told my wife and she flat out didn't believe me. Unbelievable, I guess. MK all day. Look, that's the real Saul, and he's a P1, day one guy. You got to give him that respect. Dude, look at the guy in the back right there under the food court yeah. sign. <laughs> yeah, that's he just gave, he gave up a long time ago. Yeah, huh? he did. He, he really did. He did. But do you have love for Saul? I know I misidentified him as little Anthony that time, but I blame little Anthony for that. Uh, do you do you love you some Saul? He goes everywhere yeah, with us, Luke. Yes, he is. Uh, I wouldn't call him a mascot. I don't know. That's quite fair, but he certainly is a presence uh, yes. for the show. Uh, let's go over to Eric. The wife and I representing MK at the Holloway zombie fight last night. Best part of the night, there were no woo boys the entire event. And in honor of Luke's motherland, more to come in the future as we'll be rocking MK on our travels throughout South America on my upcoming sabbatical. Columbia and BBLs, here we come. So, Luke, that's <laughs> that's Eric and his lovely lady at, in India, your, your homeland and mm -hmm. doing the tour in Singapore. How about that? Representing MK, bitch. So it's funny. Someone who was at the fight told me that they saw a couple people with MK gear on and they couldn't oh, fucking believe it. That's And uh, sure enough, here they are. Shout out to this guy, Eric. Love it. Let's go to Ethan. Good day. Good day, donks. I'm currently in transit from Sydney to Milan, roughly 17 hours into a 24-hour journey of straight traveling. We're currently transferring at Doha International Airport, so I thought there's no better place to catch up on the glorious return of Cutter's finest combat sports analyst. Welcome back, LT, and massive kudos to Brian the Sauce Campbell on holding the fort down while Luke was away with his impressive tan in between bouts of diarrhea. Viva la MK. <laughs> it's Ethan. Uh, thank you, Ethan, for taking us. I did used to live in Doha. Yes, that is with true. You. Yes, you've turned your back on that country, too. Here's Alex. When you're out on vacation and you see the Thomas family stroller. <laughs> <laughs> uh, would Tuki sit in that, Luke? You'd be okay with that, right? Oh, hell yeah. Tuki okay. could sit in that. That is okay. great. Are you kidding? Where would you get something like that? I'd buy that shit. Tomorrow. I don't know. She's too big for the stroller now, but, you know, still. All right, Luke. Not only do I have to take a massive pee, we got I got Rose right around the corner. So well, they're just not making now. any uh, any photoshops anymore, huh? They just gave up on that. No, there's a bunch more, but we just ran out of time. Okay, so for oh, the okay. great Mikey Mormile, CBS Sports behind us on the ones and twos. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back with a bang on Friday. Okay, bet live from the studio in Jersey City. So much bonus content coming your way. Enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. I got to pee my pants. Luke, why don't you tell them where they can go shove it, all right? Don't forget. Don't forget before we get out of here, vote for us. Vote for us. WorldMMAAwards.com. Put your phone up to the uh, screen there for the QR code. You can go vote now if you haven't or WorldMMAAwards.com. And one more time, I should have done it at the top of the show. Mikey told us to. We forgot, you know, because we're worthless. But MorningCombat at gmail.com. MorningCombat at gmail.com. Email us any recorded audio or a video of yourself asking a question, and we're going to start putting those 
into rotation. Morningcombat at gmail.com will take any audio or any video of yourself that you might have. Any question is basically fair game. All right. So for Mikey Morms on the ones and twos, everyone in Florida, stay safe. We're thinking about you out there. Do your best. We're back on Friday in studio for Brian Campbell. I'm Luke Thomas. Until next time, may all of your gains be loyal.